0: Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 186, The King is Alive! Hurrah! First of all, just to remind you that I am a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, a group of independent-minded folk who like a bit of a cast, now and again. You can find out more at agorapodcastnetwork.com. This month, our featured podcast is The China History Podcast by Chris Stewart. 5,000 years of history in 30-minute chunks. You can find Chris at thehistoryofchina.wordpress.com. And then another couple of announcements. Sorry, sorry, sorry. But I got a lovely note on the website. Episode 24, would you believe, Revolt of the Earls. Do any of you even remember who the Earls were? Edwin and Morcar, I think they were called. Anyway, Alex... Gently took me to task. I'd talked about cauterising a boil. Come on. Obviously, a boil is lanced. Anyway, sorry. Secondly, and rather more seriously, John tells me that I have consistently referred to Mary of Burgundy as the daughter of Margaret, Edward the Fourth's sister. And, of course, she was not. Margaret never had children with Charles the Bold. Margaret was Mary's stepmother, not her mother – Sorry seems to be the hardest word. So last week we talked about the reign of Edward Fourth. This week let's bring it to an end and set ourselves up for the accession of Edward V, his son. And so I thought it might be good, if you all agree, to talk about Edward, the young prince, so that you're ready for the lad when he appears on the big stage. For as you know in the immortal words of Geddy Lee and Rush, all the world's a stage and we are merely players. Please don't suggest that quote is in any way misattributed. We all know Rush as the finest of poets. I have popped a few quotes onto the website, by the way, into the post for this week's episode. So why don't you go and have a look? It's thehistoryofengland.com. That's quotes about Edward V, not Rush, you understand. Edward was born at the age of naught in 1470, and the circumstances of his birth were a fine symptom of the times into which he was born. His father had been made redundant from the throne of England and had left work in a hurry. But well before he'd gone, he'd got lucky one evening, and as a result Elizabeth Woodville, his wife the Queen, was pregnant. Elizabeth herself had fled to Sanctuary in Westminster with her brood of three little girls and the unborn Edward. Now, given that I haven't got a vast amount of ground to cover today, I suggest we digress whenever we feel like it. And here is just one such example. This sanctuary thing. What's it all about, then? What did it look like to Elizabeth Woodville? I have this image of her sitting on the altar day after day, and that can't really have been the case, surely. She'd have got a numb bum from the marble. So where did the idea come from? How did sanctuary work? The first thing to note is there are, in a way, two types of sanctuary. There's the general rules and the rules specific to a particular site. The general sanctuary afforded a refuge to those only who had been guilty of capital felonies. Your felon could flee to the parish church and claim sanctuary, and once claimed, he had some options. Well, two options, really. Neither particularly attractive, it has to be said. He could just use it for a breather and then leg it again. The rules gave him 40 days. Or he could go through the whole rigmarole, the full monty, which involved going in sackcloth before the coroner, making a full confession and taking an oath to leave the kingdom and not return. And this gave him another 40 days to get himself together and leave. If he didn't leave in the allotted time, he was fair game for anybody who wanted to get him but then you had some specific rights attached to particular privileged locations, and Westminster was one of these. Essentially, the rights of sanctuary Westminster had gave protection for petty and high treason, as well as capital crimes. And those rights had been given by Edward the Confessor by repute, though it could have been as late as 1198. The rules thereafter were formally the same as the general rule though it's worth noting there was no sign of anybody applying the 40-day rule to Elizabeth. It's clear that there's a political expediency thing about sanctuary. So the rules were ignored when the hated judge Tressilian was dragged out by Edward II's son Thomas of Gloucester, shoved onto a hurdle and dragged Tyburn, forced to ascend the gallows and then had his throat cut. The Duchess of Gloucester, accused of witchcraft, was refused sanctuary at Westminster. Holland, the Duke of Exeter, was also dragged out of the sanctuary at Westminster. But no one was about to do that to a Queen and her children. Very bad publicity. Equally, there would have been many other people hanging about in sanctuary to boot. So you can put the idea of Elizabeth Woodville swinging her legs and kicking her heels on the cold marble altar right out of your mind the rights of sanctuary gave rise to two areas in Westminster called the Great and the Little Sanctuary. These precincts were filled with houses and a solid church which wasn't pulled down until the 18th century. The privileges attached to the area meant that the owners of these houses could charge high rents and in the sanctuary precincts sprung up a rather hideous community of the, the desperate, the innocent and the guilty sanctuary men and women as they were called and despite the 40-day rule, you could live a lifetime in there if you really wanted to. Medieval England was a mess of these privileges and liberties, which would become increasingly anachronistic as the world changed. But the great and little sanctuaries of Westminster would survive until the Reformation swept away the monasteries, and even then the refuges survived. And really it wasn't until 1750 that the buildings and the sanctuary were finally pulled down. Back to Elizabeth then. Thomas More, the revered and lauded hero of utopia and a man for all seasons, was also an historian and a right terror for embellishing the truth and make no mistake. So he built a picture of Elizabeth alone and in the rushes, giving birth to Prince Edward, gathering her brood around her. A heart-rending picture. The truth Wasn't much more fun for Elizabeth, but you can bet the abbot found her and her family a few rooms somewhere. And now back to Prince Edward. His precarious situation seemed to change permanently for the better when his dad came home and made himself king again, and made him Prince of Wales. His childhood became the standard progression for the heir to the throne, his own household at the age of three, public engagements from the age of three, even becoming keeper of the realm at five when Edward went to France in 1475 to have a hack at the King of France's pasties. The prince's household and estates were given to his family to rule and maintain until he, Edward, was old enough. That meant the Dukes of Clarence and Gloucester, but in particular it meant Anthony Woodville, Earl Rivers, while the Earl's nephew, Richard Grey, was also part of the same household. Rivers was made the prince's tutor and spent much of his time at the prince's household at Ludlow in Shropshire. Rivers was, of course, in many ways highly suited for the role. He was part of the prince's family. He was, and as we have said ad nauseum, I think, a pious, erudite and learned man who travelled to Santiago and Rome and soaked up the Italian Renaissance translated and had printed works of philosophy, so he was a good man to oversee the prince's education and to rule and govern his household. But this was a supercritical position of power. Before long, anyway, Clarence was to make the intimate acquaintance of a barrel of Malmsey wine. Gloucester came down from the north only rarely. Rivers and Grey were on the spot and had a day-to-day relationship with the heir to the throne. Edward IV sent a letter to Rivers and the Bishop of Rochester giving detailed instructions about how his son should be governed and brought up. He should be accessible only to the Earl and the folks the Earl felt suitable. He should be brought up with all the piety that was customary. So, starting the day with matins at seven in the morning before breakfast, making sure he didn't miss out on a good sermon, and so on. After breakfast... The earl was to make sure he was, quote, occupied in such virtuous learning as his age shall suffer him to receive. He was to be surrounded by good and reliable people. No riffraff, thank you very much. And those folk had to be at the top of their game in every word they uttered. That the communication at all times in his presence be of virtue, honour, cunning, wisdom and deeds of worship and of nothing that should move or stir to vice. Also, the people doing this communication had to be somewhere between Mother Teresa and the Holy Spirit. We will that no person, man or woman, being within our said son's household, be customable, swearer, brawler, backbiter, common hazarder, adulterer, and use words of ribaldry, especially in the presence of our son. By golly, pass that application form to me, I don't think. And then the prince was allowed some exercise, a little bit more learning, even song and supper at four. A bit of messing around allowed for a while and then off to bed by eight o'clock sharp. No messing. You might be interested to know that I found the original letter on the interweb and have duly made it available to you all. It's not very long. It's at thehistoryofengland.com. Go to this week's post and there's a link-a-doodle. Did I seriously just say that? There's a link. In this role, Rivers and Grey were actually in a position of great power. There was an immediate benefit. With lands in Wales, Rivers was able to use this base in Ludlow on the Welsh borders to consolidate a territorial power base of his own. In addition, The young prince was duly grateful to his uncles. Richard Grey, in particular, profited from grants of land. This was all great for the Woodvilles, but not brilliant for others. It might, in fact, be that one of the immediate folk to suffer was the Duke of Buckingham, who also had a traditional power base around the Marches of Wales. Buckingham is an interesting case. Just once more to digress, and I think I mentioned this last week to boot. So here was a man who might well have expected to be at the very centre of power as a man descended from the royal family and married to a Woodville. But he was in fact totally excluded from royal favour, not even invited to the royal council. And meanwhile he had to watch Rivers and Grey sitting with the prince consolidating their power in his Buckingham's hood. This was not the sort of thing that made your commoner garden magnate very happy. Short-term benefits were one thing, but the biggie was when the prince became king and was hopefully duly grateful to his Woodville uncles. We saw the same thing with the minority of Henry VI, a grateful prince trusting and rewarding the people he was close to, and equally squabbling and panicking about the advantage gained by those close to the prince. and equally squabbling and panicking at court about the advantage gained by those close to the prince, such as Rivers and Grey. Of course, none of this was a big thing while Edward the Fourth was alive, and presumably, since he was a relatively young man, albeit a bit fat in the loins, he'd be around until the prince was old enough to understand and control his urges, if you will. Now, we don't get much of an insight into the young Edward V, Just a few glimpses through our friend Mancini, a man I have quoted many times before, and about whom we will talk again, have no fear. Mancini was an Italian visitor, well connected. He said of the young Edward, He had such dignity in his person, and in his face such charm, that however much they may gaze, he never wearied the eyes of the beholders. Well, that's nice, isn't it? And again... This context seems to require that I should not pass over in silence the talent of the youth. In word and deed he gave so many proofs of his liberal education, of polite, nay, rather scholarly attainment far beyond his age. All of these should be recounted, but require so such labour that I shall lawfully excuse myself the effort. There is one thing I shall not omit and that is his special knowledge of literature which enabled him to discourse elegantly, to understand fully, and to disclaim most excellently from any work, whether in verse or prose, which came into his hands, unless it were from among the more obtuse authors. Essentially, Rivers seems to have done his job well, and if Mancini is to be at all trusted, he was a young man who shared Rivers' interest in literature. So, that's our young heir apparent being brought up in the way of righteousness in the Welsh borders in the hands of the Woodvilles. Which helps me segue nicely, I thought, into a discussion about the Woodvilles again. So, the narrative is that the Woodvilles were an evil, scheming bunch. The Queen, frankly, set her cap at the King and tricked him into marrying her when, of course, the honourable thing to do would have been to be used temporarily for casual sex then thrown aside. That's irony, by the way. Then, the narrative continues the Woodvilles descend on the body politic like a cloud of locusts. They gnaw, they bite, they worm, and as they do those most unpleasant sounding things, they push aside the great and the good. The true, honest, decent, and remarkably good looking magnates, sucking up all the available patronage through a series of marriages. But that's not all. Oh, no, not by a long chalk. Then they dominate the king and his council. Wherever you are, wherever you turn, that's a jolly woodville under a rock. So while Edward IV is alive, it's kinda bearable, because he's a masterful, capable king who holds it all together by the force of his personality and his political skill. But underneath the surface, the hatred and factions brew and breed and the smell of decay and despair rise like a miasma from the swamp. By heck. So that's the narrative. Essentially, there are three assertions about the Woodvilles and the way that they're viewed. Number one, that the Woodvilles were seen as grasping and greedy and despised as parvenus. Number two, that the Woodvilles were feared for the level of political influence they were seen to have. And number three, that there was bad blood between the Woodvilles and other key political players, Hastings and Gloucester in particular. Let's take them one by one. The greedy and grasping thing is hard to substantiate. There are incidents. Think of Elizabeth Woodville and her insistence on the Queen's gold in the legal pursuit of Sir Thomas Cook and her determined pursuit of the marriage of the heiress, Anne St. Leger, to her grandson Dorset's son. But equally, this is just typical magnate behaviour. It was a game in which they were all players. So for comparison, consider the villainy that Richard of Gloucester and the Duke of Clarence, and indeed the King, visited on the Countess of Warwick, essentially putting aside the law to rob her of her rights for their own gain. What about the accusation that political power is dominated by the Woodvilles, that they packed the royal councils? Again, there's really very little evidence for that at all. So, Rivers, for example, was the head of the Woodville family, officially. And he was either at Ludlow or poncing off to Spain or Rome with his hair shirt and his namby-pamby books, not doing what every reasonable villain should be doing and perverting the course of the nation for his own personal gain. If there is a face of the Woodvilles in political life, it's really only the Marquess of Dorset, Thomas Grey, Elizabeth Woodville's son by her first marriage. But chroniclers like the Croyland Chronicle and Mancini report that the Woodvilles are widely disliked and widely feared for their influence. Maybe this is one of those examples of backdoor influence, the direct ear of the king rather than the official channels. But again, the evidence is a bit thin. On the third, bad blood, there's just no evidence that Gloucester and the Woodvilles were at each other's throats. In fact, the evidence points the other way. So Rivers asked Gloucester to arbitrate on a dispute he had in 1482. And this implies anything but a lack of trust. It implies quite strongly that Rivers trusted Gloucester to be impartial. It's the action of a friend there is rather more reliable ground to stand on as far as rivalry between the Woodvilles and Hastings is concerned. Again, it's all a bit nebulous, but it is there. There is an argument that leads to the death of two people, reportedly, though not clear why. Then there's the captaincy of Calais. Dorset wants it, Hastings wants it, the king gives it to Hastings and Dorset sulks. Then there is the Woodville grab for the inheritance of Anna St. Ledger, and arguments over land in the Midlands which seems to bring them into conflict and provide potential for bad blood. Though I have to say, this is the kind of thing that magnates do all the time. They are always, always squabbling. So it's difficult to know how serious this was in practice. The long and short is that the practical physical evidence that the Woodvilles were grasping power-hungry leeches is a bit lacking. On any scientific, rational analysis, they were no worse than anyone else. They were the king's relations. How could he not make sure they married well? My granny would agree, it's your first duty, get the kids married off well. There's no solid, rational evidence that other members of the political classes didn't get on with them, certainly not Gloucester. And there's no solid evidence that Edward danced to his wife's tune that Elizabeth unduly influenced his policy choices. Logic fails us a little here, just maybe. Looked at coldly, there's little evidence of feuds and bad blood. But what's impossible for us at this distance to understand is the emotion of it all. For example, there's the murky world of Edward's peccadillos and the sordid world of mistresses and all that sort of thing. And the pecking order between Hastings and Dorset, about who supplied the king with his mistresses, who was his favourite drinking partner. By the sound of things, Hastings and Dorset were rivals in love, or rivals in lust, possibly. Mancini wrote that they were rivals for, quote, mistresses who they had abducted or attempted to entice from each other. So who can tell or history relate what all of this meant to the individuals concerned in their hearts? I suspect the emotions bound up with this sort of situation are far more powerful than anything about land and money. I suspect it would be foolish to ignore the chroniclers in their view that the Woodvilles were feared and distrusted. Maybe unfairly, maybe it was only a suspicion, but when something went wrong, there probably was an atmosphere of distrust that created a volatile combustible pyre on which the body politic waited to be burned. And all that stood in the way were the podgy lines of Edward IV. Meanwhile then... You might be wondering about Henry and Jasper Tudor and how things are going with them. You might not, but you might be. Last thing we heard, Duke Francis of Brittany had them bottled up in a castle, stuck on the sixth floor for their own protection, as it were. This was in 1474. Then in 1475, Edward IV, of course, went to France in search of pasties, Part of the Treaty of Picquigny was for Louis to promise not to attack Brittany. And to make sure he got Edward's hands off his pasties, Louis agreed. Edward took the good news straight to Francis. Look, Fran, he said, surely you can now see who your friends are. Let's stop messing about. Let's stop dancing round the handbags. Hand over Henry Tudor and have done. Francis hoard. And Francis hummed, he hummed and he hawed, So Edward followed the strategy that every child knows works. He nagged. He nagged for a year. He nagged some more. Go on, Fran. Go on. Be a mate. Go on, please. And guess what? After a year of renewed nagging, Francis snapped. Oh, all right then. Fine. And a handover was agreed for November 1476 at the port of St. Malo in Brittany. Everything was in place, the English fleet was offshore, and Henry was being brought to meet them. Henry had learned the ups and downs of international diplomacy during his time. On his way to St. Malo, he was desperate. Finally, this was it failure, death, after everything that's gone on. And so he did what any sensible person would do he threw a sickie and wonder of wonders, it worked. He took sanctuary in the Abbey of St Marlowe, pleading illness, and while some brother mopped his brow, Francis changed his mind and called him back. Edward decided that trying to kill Henry with a knife across the carotid artery was not the way then. The way was to kill him with kindness. Now it's easy, with the benefit of hindsight, to see Margaret Beaufort as some sort of all-knowing, omniscient witch. That when she, supported by her husband Thomas Stanley, began to suggest another way, she ultimately had kingship in mind already. It's a racing certainty that she didn't. There were Yorkist heirs all over the place, or at least two. Edward IV was completely secure and in control, and Henry Tudor had a rubbish claim to the throne anyway, with bastard scrawled all over it. Nope. In all likelihood, what she was doing was simply to get a decent life for her son, rather than the desperate life of a fugitive, hunted and alone. Clarence had died a while ago. This is relevant because Clarence had snaffled. In fact, Clarence was by nature a snaffler, but in this case, he'd snaffled the honour of Richmond. Henry Tudor's dad, Edmund, had been the Earl of Richmond, and Henry Tudor himself had been recognised in 1457 as Earl, only for it to go belly-up when all the Lancaster-York thing had kicked off. So now Clarence was out of the way, the honour of Richmond was available for Henry. And so Margaret and Stanley did their own bit of nagging. "'Look, Edward,' they said, "'wouldn't you rather have Henry inside the tent?' Clearly you're never going to get his head on a plate from Francis. You've been trying that for years. Try a different approach, king. Give the lad something to live for. A reason to support you. He's a lovely lad. You are a king. Jolly good one, if you don't mind me saying. Your dynasty is as solid as a rock now. So look. Make Henry Earl of Richmond and he'll spend the rest of his life tying your shoelaces, if you like. Actually, Edward could see the sense of this. He'd always struggled with shoelaces. And in 1482, an agreement had indeed been reached between Edward, Stanley and Margaret. Everything was in place at last for the return and the rehabilitation of the exiles. The Christmas celebrations of 1482 were by all accounts the most magnificent for many years. Now, given that getting that fat in the loins demands a certain amount of commitment to celebration, this really means something. Given that Edward's court had been described as the most magnificent in all Europe, means that the boat was well and truly pushed out. Edward was 40. The rain was going well, everything was under control. Advent, running up to the Christmas period, was traditionally a time of fasting, which presumably wasn't much to Edward's taste. So, he'd have been looking forward to the celebrations that would go all the way through to Epiphany. In fact, it was anyway, permanent party time with his mates Dorset and Hastings, tripping over themselves to point out the most attractive women with whose minds he should make acquaintance. OK, there was some worry that the atmosphere between his powerful lieutenants wasn't great, Gloucester-Hastings-Dorset. So we'd have to sort that out, but as he went through the celebrations and parties and pageants of the court, I'd guess that Edward was pretty convinced that God was in her heaven and all was well with the world. According to Mancini, in March 1483 Edward was on a fishing trip. I am assuming these fishing trips were nothing like the fishing trips of my youth, which involved hauling 11 billion gudgeon out of the River Soar, putting them in a keep net, and then chucking them all back in at the end of the day. I truly hope they weren't. There was little glory in it, I have to tell you. Anyway, you don't listen to the podcast to hear about the days of my youth. You listen to get yourself a good night's kip. Anyway, Edward's fishing trip. Then something happened. Either Edward caught a bad chill, or others reported something more violent, apoplexy, a fit. But whatever it was, Edward was immediately seriously ill and for a while it looked as though he'd died that day. There are similarities immediately obvious with Henry V, a king in total control, struck down by a violent illness that makes it quite clear he's on his way to the pearly gates, with powerful family members in something of a paddy. So he'd better get his affairs in order PDQ. For Henry, it had been his brothers, John and Humph. For Edward, it was Gloucester, Hastings and his wife's family, especially in the form of Dorset. Gloucester was away in the north of England at the time and so couldn't be reached in time, but the king called Dorset and Hastings to his bedside as he added a codicil to his will. He would probably not have been too worried. After all, Henry V's heir had been just six months old. Edward's heir was 12 years old and at the point when he could take control of his throne anyway with a bit of guidance. Edward's will unfortunately does not survive, but under his bedclothes Edward apparently had the strength to dictate to his scribes that his will should make Gloucester Lord Protector, protector of the realm, until his son Edward V could fully take over. And he tried to make sure that there would be no shenanigans. He called Hastings and Dorset together and told them that for the good of the realm they needed to put aside their differences and they needed to support Gloucester in his task as Lord Protector. This was essentially the last task. On the 9th of April 1483, before his 43rd birthday, Edward IV died his body, naked except for a loincloth to cover what had apparently been the most active and favourite part of his body, was put on a board in Westminster Palace. This meant that the Lords, spiritual and temporal, and the aldermen of the City of London could all come and look at it and make sure it really was Edward, and he really was dead. Then it was embalmed and clothed and lay in state in St Stephen's Chapel, and then started on its journey to Edward's favourite place, Windsor. That was where his new chapel of St George waited for his body along with the spirits of all the other Garter knights. And there the body was laid in its grave and all the household officials cast their staves of office into the grave with it and the heralds threw their coats of arms. At this point, the heralds were given new coats of arms. Edward V wasn't here yet. He was still in Ludlow with his tutor Rivers and Richard Grey. But now that Edward IV was in his grave, the heralds cried, The king lives! The king lives! The idea was and is that sovereignty transfers immediately to the new monarch. The king is dead. Long live the king, as it were. And so there we are. We have successfully seen another king into his grave. I rather feel we've made a lot of comments on Edward IV's reign and on Edward himself already, so not sure we should spend much more time on him. But in summary, he's had a less-than-glorious reputation at points. This is despite his contemporary reputation. His contemporary reputation was that of a king of some stature, a magnificent court, businesslike, attention to detail, and, crucially, who settled the pain and distress of the Wars of the Roses. But the Victorians, and Stubbsy, of course, didn't take to him one little bit. They focused on the complete lack of any constitutional development – and the debauchery and fat loins thing. These days, we've redressed the balance a bit. At the distance of 500 years, after all, it's easy to minimise just what a success story Edward was, and how horribly pear-shaped it could have gone. He has a record of almost unbroken military success. He put a vicious civil war to bed, it seems, left a very credible and financially secure kingdom behind him. OK, there were a bunch of powerful men now floating around the place, Gloucester, Dorset, Hastings, Rivers, as well as the Queen. And there was a danger they'd find it difficult to get on. But everything everyone knew about Gloucester suggested that his would be capable and loyal hands into which the place, the new 12-year-old king. And OK, Edward's foreign policy had turned out to be something of a blustered flush, but you can't have everything. I'm personally inclined and have always been inclined to think Edward IV one of our more successful and attractive monarchs. But you tell me. Come along to the website and the Facebook site and share your view. Let the world know what you think about Edward IV. Speak and the world shall listen. Next week, we will see how the loyal and capable Duke of Gloucester reacts to the news of Edward's death. Hopefully we will hear how Dorset, Hastings, Rivers and the Queen gather round, hold hands... Support the new protector of the realm and bring the young king successfully to the start of a long and glorious reign. By the way, before we go on to thanks and all that sort of thing, do not forget the world of love and wonder that is my website. Well, world of wonder anyway. If you do go to thehistoryofengland.com, look to your left and you'll see a group of resources for the Wars of the Roses. Family trees, maps, flybys of the major names and players, all that sort of stuff. Immerse yourself in the wonder Then, if your eyes just happen to flick right, amazingly enough, you'll see a donate button. Just saying. Which brings me on, of course, to my heroic donators. To my monthly regulars this week, Jabal, Cool, Matthew, Eric, Joshua, Andrea, Nancy and Dan, thank you, you are collectively a brick. And to new folks this week, Pascal, James, Richard, Nancy and Michael, Jolly generous of you. Thanks a lot. Oakley doakley, that's all, folks. See you next week.